Okay. So we started by talking about the three kinds of spiritual thirst. Thirst of the empty soul, thirst of the dry soul, thirst of the satisfied soul. Second is, why is a blessing to thirst for God? The blessing of spiritual thirst. First reason it's a blessing is, if you thirst for God, God initiated that thirst. That's evidence of the work of God, the Holy Spirit within you. You would not thirst for God by nature. And those who say they do are thirsting for a God of their own imagination, a God made in their own image, a God who will give them what they want, uh, a God of their own making. But if you thirst for God as He's revealed Himself in Scripture, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. So just the presence of such a thirst, despite your failures, your sins, that is a mark of soul growth that you thirst for God. Not just you kind of, you like God, you admire God, you have some inclination toward God, but you thirst for God. That is a mark of a growing soul. And you are blessed because God initiated that thirst. But now second, you are blessed because God initiates spiritual thirst in order to satisfy it. He doesn't give us a thirst for himself to mock us. He gives us a thirst for himself because he intends to satisfy it with the only thing that can satisfy it, himself. Now, we're back to Jonathan Edwards. And a few years ago, I was reading in uh, the works of Jonathan Edwards the most remarkable thing I've ever read in my life other than the Bible. And I say that thoughtfully, carefully. Uh, it's a sermon called, Nothing Upon Earth Can Represent the Glories of Heaven. Nothing upon earth can represent the glories of heaven. You may be able, I, I know you can find it online. I don't know, it's just by typing that in. Nothing upon earth can represent the glories of heaven. Now, there, there's a great gift of, of God to the church. <clears throat> if you go uh, online, edwards.yale.edu. Edwards.yale, Y-A-L-E, Yale University. Edwards.yale.edu. It's the Jonathan Edwards uh, Center there. And they have all 78 volumes of the critical works of Jonathan Edwards available. 27 of them are in print. They're all about $125 per book. And then the other 50 or so are only online. But all of them are online, fully searchable. It's an incredible gift to the church. And for some reason, though, I've tried several times, if you go to that website and you type in the sermon, it won't come up. You have to look in the uh, sermon uh, index. And I forget the text exactly, but it's from um, uh, Revelation. So if you, if you poke around, you'll eventually find it. Let me see if I got anything here. Uh, okay, it's in volume 14, page, uh, around page 143. So if you go there, it's volume 14. So there is, it's by volume, too. If you go to volume 14, you'll be able to find it. And there were times, in reading this, Ned, it starts a little bit slow. And remember, Edwards, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not easy reading. It's like, as Packer said about John Owen, it's like digging for diamonds. You know, it's hard, but every once in a while, you come, what you come up with, it changes your life, you know. Uh, and it takes a while to get going. But there were times I can remember so clearly, it, it was so breathtaking. It was so astonishing. I would lean back in my chair and whether in the body, I don't know, or, or out of the body, I don't know. I was just almost catatonic with the glory and the depth, the profundity of what he was saying. And I'm going to try to give you a taste of that because it relates to God giving us a thirst for him in order to satisfy it. Oh, this is so good. I'm so excited to share this with you. But now, I know this is the tiredest time of the week, right? This is late Friday night, so gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> this is not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. So whatever it takes, pinch yourself. What do you have to do to, you know, to pay attention here? Because this is so rich. This is so good. But I'm going to try to paraphrase a lot of this because it would be a, a little, little difficult if I didn't do that. But Edward says that the godly are designed for unknown and inconceivable happiness. Now, don't get hung up over his use of happiness here instead of the word joy. I mean, he means the same pure, eternal, godly joy, happiness. And he says God 
made us for inconceivable happiness. And, no doubt, but God will obtain His end in a glorious perfection. Okay? So, God made us, He designed us for inconceivable happiness. A happiness you right now cannot imagine. You are unable to imagine how happy you will be in God. God made you for that. And God will pull off His plan. God is going to do it. And not just by the skin of His teeth, but in a glorious perfection. And so, he says, if God has indeed made us for an unimaginable fullness of joy, and He has implanted longings for that, we want that, then surely, says Edwards, God has made man capable of exceeding great happiness. And I'm going to describe it as, you know, a tank, your happiness tank. God has made you with a happiness tank that is capable of exceeding great happiness, which he doubtless did not do in vain. Hey, God gave you a tank that could hold, let's say, this much happiness. And he didn't give you a tank that could hold that much happiness for nothing. Okay? To create man with a capacity that he never intended to fill would have been to have created a large capacity when there was need but of a smaller. Okay? You with me? Indeed, it makes man less happy to be capable of more happiness than he shall ever obtain. He said, can anyone think that in our creation we were made to be left in this respect imperfect, that forever we would be thinking, well, heaven's pretty good, but it could be better, you know? Pretty, you know, but I thought it'd be better than this. No, no. God gave you a capacity for this much happiness. You've never known it yet. But he didn't give you a tank that could hold this much happiness if he didn't intend to fill it. It appears then that man was intended for a very great blessedness inasmuch as God has created man with a craving and desire that can be filled with nothing but a very great happiness. In other words, he has planted within you longings for everything that I'm talking about right now. You're listening to this and thinking, yeah, that's what I want. I want more happiness than I have ever known. I want to be filled with happiness, unending happiness. There are moments of happiness in my life that have been terrific. When that baby pops out, there's nothing quite like that, right? In, the, in those occasional moments of life, when it, but it's always, it's very punctilier. You know, it's like when you jump up and say, yes, touchdown, you know, and you come off the couch. But that, that moment of excitement is just that. It's just a moment. The greatest, most glorious, unexpected, last-second athletic victory where you jump up and down, as great as that is, it just doesn't last, does it? The most wonderfully happy moments of your life when you think, I, I don't know if I could stand anymore. They don't last. And something in us says, I, I want to be there all the time. And Edwards is saying, God designed you to be like that. And in fact, it's going to be more than you can imagine. All the time. And he didn't do that for nothing. And he's given you a desire for that. For unending happiness. Not just up and down and up and down. But, but a happiness that would never be broken. A happiness beyond my ability to even imagine. And it would never end. And Edward says God has given you a capacity for that. Right? Does anyone in here say, yeah, I'm as happy as I can stand? No, we all say, I could take a lot more happiness. Right? Give me more. And he's given you a desire to, to have that. And he says, God did not create in man so earnest a desire, when at the same time he did not create for so much as he should desire. In other words, he didn't give you a desire for this much happiness, when he's only going to give you this much. Because what you long for is of God. 
you can't want too much of it. Because no matter how much of it you want, that's good and that's right because it's God created, it's God designed for you, and so it's going to be more than you can imagine. He has given you the desire to know a happiness in Him that is beyond your ability to imagine right now. Therefore, he says, that this craving and desire was our, our thirst for God, a longing which can be thoroughly and finally satisfied only in the eternal, undiminished, and face-to-face enjoyment of the Lord Himself in heaven. Therefore, writes Edwards, <laughs> seeing that reason does so undeniably evidence that saints shall at one time or another enjoy so great glory. He says, okay, it's, it's, it's so obvious now, anybody who knows anything knows by now, that sometime or another we're going to experience a great glory. Why does reason tell us that? Because God has given us a desire to know Him in great glory. And He wouldn't give us that desire for Himself if He wasn't going to satisfy it with Himself. So it's going to happen sometime. God wouldn't give you that desire if it wasn't going to happen sometime. And, therefore, we learn there is undoubtedly a future state after death because we see they do not enjoy so great a glory in this world. (laughs) All right, you you follow him here? He says, all right, God has given you a desire for this much happiness and glory in God. And we don't get it in this world. We know it's going to happen sometime. God has designed us for that. And we know it's going to happen sometime. And it doesn't happen in this world. Therefore, there's another world. (laughs) Brilliant. Of course, why couldn't I see that? All the spiritual pleasure they enjoy in this life, the greatest worship services you have ever known, the, the, the greatest... God-given blessedness when that baby pops out, when you walk down the aisle and, and, and you look into the eyes of your beloved and these great moments in life when there's nothing like that. And you know, this is of God. Thank you, God. This is pure blessing of God. All the spiritual pleasure you enjoy in this life does but inflame their desire and thirst for more enjoyment of God. In the most exhilarating moments in worship you've ever had in this room, it only makes you want more of God, doesn't it? No one walks out of here and says, well, I don't need any more of that for a week, right? No, we wish, oh, I want to close my eyes and open them to see the Lord himself. Oh, this is so good. This is the high point of the week. This is so joyous. This is so blessed. This is so filling and satisfying. Oh, that this would be just fully enjoyed in the presence of God Himself. All the spiritual pleasure we ever know only gives us more of a desire for God. And if we knew there was no future life, says Edwards, it would only increase our misery to think that after this life was ended, we were never to enjoy God anymore at all. How good is God, Edwards concludes. How good is God that he has created man for this very end to make him happy in the enjoyment of himself, the Almighty. How good is God. He has made us so that he can bless us for all eternity. As he says in Ephesians, so that through endless ages he can show us the the unsurpassed riches in Christ Jesus. He's created us with a longing. Oh God, I want to know you. I want to be satisfied with you. I want to be filled with you. I want to be fully enjoying you forever beyond my ability to even express edwards often spoke of how in the greatest moments of worship in god in his life he felt this this clog in his soul that he wanted to that there's something within him wanted to flame out more in love toward god and praise and worship of god but it was never fully able to be expressed just because of the limitations of this body and the sin in this world and he longed for a the heaven of of the presence of God, where he could praise God as his soul longed to do fully, without restriction, without inhibition. 
God puts that in your soul. And he does so because he's going to satisfy that. He made us to bless us forever. He made us to find enjoyment in him forever and ever. And the longing for that is evidence of the blessing of God. You wouldn't have that longing but by the Holy Spirit. But you are blessed because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Those who hunger for God will be satisfied forever in God, satisfied beyond your ability to even imagine how happy you will be. And once we behold His glory, we will testify what Psalm 36, 8 says, They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your pleasures. You thirst for God like that. That is a God-planned part of the growth of a soul toward the Heavenly Father. This makes sense, doesn't it, when you think about it that way? That in this life, as we grow in godliness, there's a part of us that grows more hungry and thirsty for God. And the more we experience God, the more we want, the more we grow, the more we long, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Now, very practically. The last part of this I call practical steps for thirsting after the thirst slaker. The one who slakes our spiritual thirst. Practical steps for thirsting after the thirst slaker. How do we thirst after? Long for the only one who can satisfy our souls. I'm going to give you three Spend most of my time on the first two. First one is this. Meditate on Scripture. Meditate on Scripture. Now, the conference I do most frequently, we spend all Saturday morning on this. The two most important personal spiritual disciplines are the intake of the Word of God in prayer. And in that order. For it's more important for us to hear from God through His Word than for God to hear from us in prayer. So as important as prayer is, it is second to the intake of the Word of God. But with both of these most important personal spiritual disciplines, there is an almost universal problem. With the intake of the Word of God, the almost universal problem looks like this. You take your Bible. I mean, it's true of our most devoted daily Bible readers. You take your Bible, you sit down, you read a chapter, you read three chapters, however much it is you read on a daily basis. And as soon as you close your Bible, most days, if pressed, you would have to admit what? Yeah, everybody said, don't remember a thing I read, right? I forget it, don't remember a thing I've read. And we think, well, I guess it's just me. I guess I'm just a second-rate Christian. Never had a good memory. The memory I did have, I'm losing. I never had a high IQ anyway. I never had a good education. I have some 22-year-old geniuses in my classes at the seminary have the same problem. So it's not your age. It's not your IQ. It's not your education. It's not your memory. All those things may be true. You may be older. You may be losing your memory. You may never have had a great memory. You, you may have never had a high IQ or good education. That's not why you don't remember what you read in the Bible. Reading alone was never intended to be the primary means of absorbing the Scripture. Reading is the exposure to Scripture. That's the starting place. What is the truth? The intake of the truth. But with almost everyone, that's the ending place. Reading is the exposure to Scripture. Meditation is the absorption of Scripture. And it's the absorption of Scripture that leads to the experience with God. And the transformation of life we long for when we come to the Scriptures. And the reason we so seldom remember what we read the reason we so seldom experience God through the Scripture in our daily reading, and we can't remember the last time that our daily time in the Word of God changed our day, much less changed our life, I would contend is through lack of meditation. 
It's not that people can't do that. We just don't. People say, well, you don't get it. <laughs> that sounds great. But what you're telling me is, well, if I would do more, I would be better. Well, I know that. That's true in an area of my life. If I would practice a guitar more, I'd be a better guitar player. If I would stay longer at work, I'd be a better employee. If I'd spend more time with the family, I'd be a better family member. With everything, if I would do more, I would be better. But I can't do more at everything. I want to do more, but I, but I can't. So what I hear you telling me is if I would just, okay, you read the Bible, now you got to meditate on top of that. If I would do more, I would be better spiritually. I know that, but I'm working two jobs. I'm a single parent. I'm working 70, 80 hours a week. I can't do more. God is my witness. I have to just to chisel out 10 minutes of my day in the Word of God. And I do so because I love the Word of God and I'm devoted to it. But I have to stand by the bed to read those 10 minutes. Because if I try to read in bed, I mean, it's face plant in the Bible. So you're killing me. I want to do more. I'd love to do more, but I can't do more. Don't tell me to do more. I, I get that. If you only have 10 minutes, I get that. But if you only have 10 minutes, don't read for 10 minutes. Read for five minutes. Meditate for five minutes. Far better to read less, if necessary, and remember something than to read more and remember nothing. Right? Some of the greatest promises in the Bible have to do with meditation on Scripture. John 1, uh, Joshua 1, 8. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Uh, James 1, is it 17 or, or, or 121? I don't remember. Looking intently in the Word of God. He'll be blessed in what he does. Sounds like Psalm 1, verse 3. And I think if it were within my power to change the devotional lives of every Christian on the planet, it would be right here. It would be meditation on Scripture. It's not that people can't, we just don't. See, you have, you have a functioning memory. You know how I know that? You're here. You remembered tonight was the conference. You remembered where it was. You remembered how to get here. And for most of you, when you got here and looked around, you recognized a few faces. You know, it wasn't everyone wasn't a total stranger you'd never seen in your life. You have a functioning memory. You may not have a well-trained memory. You may not have a nearly photographic memory like my boss, Dr. Moeller. But you have a functioning memory. You can remember what you read in the Bible. You just don't do what's necessary. And I don't mean additional work. There are just some ways that God made us by which we remember in some ways we don't. God said to Jeremiah, Is not my word like a hammer and a fire? Is not my word like a hammer and a fire, like a hammer that breaks hard hearts, like a fire that melts cold hearts? God says His word is like a fire. Meditation is like a bellows. You know what that is, don't you? A little air pump, a little hand air pump on a fire. Shh, 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 shh. Meditation is like a bellows on the fire of the Word of God. And when a fire blazes up, at least two things emanate from it increasingly, right? You get more heat and more light. That's what happens when we apply, as a Puritan said, the bellows of meditation to the fire of God's Word. You get more light. You have more aha moments. You have more insights. You see more application. That's what basically the psalmist is describing when he says, the unfolding of your words brings light. That's what meditation is, unfolding the Word of God. But we need not just light, we need heat, don't we? Often we know what the right thing to do is, right? We have the light, we just don't feel like doing it, right? When you sin, is your problem usually a lack of light or is it a lack of heat? We know what to do, we just don't feel like doing it, right? Where does the heat, where does the fire, where does the desire to do what the Bible says come from? Just reading the Bible? It's not what the Bible says. It comes through meditation. Now, imagine that this podium here was a fire right here. It's a literal fire. And I've been outside on a cold Canada winter day. 
And I come in and say, whew, man, I'm cold, man, I'm cold. But, oh, there's a fire. Oh, that fire feels good. That fire feels good because I'm cold. I'm cold. I'm still cold. I don't get it. Why am I cold? I went right by the fire. Then stay by it, right? You got to stay by fire to get warm. It warms your skin. It warms your muscles. Then it warms your bones. Then you're fully warm. You have to linger by it. You, you can't just, as we say down south, you can't just sashay by the fire. <laughs> and then say, I, I wonder why I didn't get warm. I guess it's just me. I guess I'm just a second-class warmer-upper. <laughs> Problem is not you. It's your method. Now, folks, here's the point. That's the way most of us come to the Bible every day. We've got to fire the Word of God here. And it takes our eyes about two seconds to go past the fire of verse 1, right? And how long does it take you to go past the fire of verse 2? Well, a couple of seconds. And then you've seen verse 2. And then it takes your eyes about two seconds to go past the fire of the next verse. You can have a thousand two-second passes by the fire of God's Word. And your heart is as cold as it was before you started. And you won't remember a thing. Because answer me this. What do you ever remember that you look at for two seconds? Almost nothing, right? What sentences do you ever look at in a magazine, in a book, even in the Bible? What sentences do you ever look at for two seconds and remember, if that naturally occurred, every student in here could make straight A's with only 30 minutes of study a night, right? You look at it once, okay, I got it, I read it. Reading alone is not the way we normally absorb something. That's the starting place, that's the exposure. You've got to know the truth. But where reading tells us God is love. It's through meditation that we feel the love of God in biblically appropriate ways. It's through meditation that we taste and see that the Lord is good. That's when the information on the page becomes experience in our lives. Not just through reading, but through meditation. You ever had the experience of reading the Bible on a Sunday morning? You close the Bible... As usual, you don't remember a thing you've read. But you come to church, and lo and behold, the pastor preaches on the same passage and sets your heart on fire. You're ready to do something. Well, what's the difference? It, same person, same passage, same morning. In one case, your heart is cold as ice. The other case, your heart is set on fire, and you're ready to do something. You know what the difference is? It's meditation. Guided meditation, to be sure. It was the pastor who kept your heart by the fire of the Word of God for 30, 45 minutes or more. He kept you thinking about the truth of the Word of God, and the Word did its work. Whereas that morning, you just read it, two seconds, and you were done. It's meditation that sets the heart on fire. It's meditation that gives us the fire the desire, the drive to get up and do what the Bible says to do. And we simply don't do that. It's simple. Simple, simple, simple. It's not always easy to do. It certainly isn't always easy to obey. But it's not hard to figure out. We just don't meditate on Scripture. And unfortunately, I mean... I'm not here to talk about that tonight. Otherwise, I would do, as I normally do on Saturday morning, we talk about 17 different ways to meditate on Scripture. There's not just one way. If this is a, a, a passion for you right now, I'm not here to sell books. The books that are there are already bought and paid for, as far as I'm concerned. In, in the one he mentioned, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Third chapter, there's a lot on this. and all I talk about all 17 methods there which is designed to show there's not one way to meditate on Scripture. And there's some things in there you'd say, I'd never do that in 500 years. But someone else is just vibrating with excitement when they read that same method. 
But I mean, it, it's, it's easy, right? It's got to be doable if all Christians are expected to do it. But we just don't do it. Let's come back now to our main idea about thirsting for God. You can read the Bible, close it, and your heart is just as cold, and you don't remember a thing from the Bible all day long. But You meditate on Scripture, the Word does its work. The fire warms your heart. It gives you desires for God, longings for God. You experience God through the Word. And when you meditate on it once during the day, you absorb it in such a way that you can remember it throughout the day so that you can meditate how often, according to the Bible. We're to meditate how often? Day and night. How do I do that? Good grief. God's given me a job to do. God's given me a home to take care of. God's given me a family to take care of, a church to serve in, a country to be a citizen in, neighborhood to be a good neighbor. How do I do all of these other things that God gave me and do one thing day and night? Well, the only possible way we can do that is once during the day we absorb Scripture in such a way that whatever else we're doing day or night, we can meditate on Scripture. So that when you're driving into work, you should be able to say, what was that verse this morning? Oh, yeah. You're in the drive-thru at Tim Hortons, you know, for lunch. Or you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep. You should be able to say, what was that verse this morning? Oh, yeah. And if you can't, that's a simple, simple test that tells you you did not sufficiently meditate. It's not meant to make you feel guilty. That's just a simple test. How, how do I know if I've meditated or not? Can you remember it day and night? And you know what? If you spend just 30 seconds on a verse, meditating on a verse, and surely you've got that much time for the Word of God, don't you? <laughs> if you spend just 30 seconds meditating on a verse, that doesn't seem like long, and it isn't, but you realize that's 15 times longer than you normally would have looked at that verse? Just one minute of thinking on a verse is 30 times longer than you normally would have looked at it. To meditate on Scripture is simple, it can be done briefly. If God expects all of his children to do it, it's got to be simple, right? Because God has children of all kinds, all over the world, of all ages, all mental capacities, all educational levels. And so if you want to thirst after God, to draw near God, to experience God, not just at church, but in your daily encounter with the Word of God, don't merely read it, meditate on Scripture. Second practical step in thirsting after the thirst slaker. Pray the Scripture. Pray the Bible. I said a little while ago that the two most important personal spiritual disciplines, there are personal spiritual disciplines, there are congregational spiritual disciplines. We're experiencing one of those tonight. We're, we're to get into the Word of God by ourselves. That's a personal spiritual discipline. We're also to hear it preached and taught, read with the church. That's a congregational spiritual discipline. We're to pray alone. That's personal. We're to pray with the church. That's congregational. The Bible teaches both. Jesus practiced both. But I'm talking about the two most important personal spiritual disciplines. Your personal intake of the Word now and prayer. I said with both of them, there's an almost universal problem. The intake of the Word of God, we read it, we forget it as soon as we close the Bible, right? Nearly everyone has that problem. Simple, permanent, biblical solution. Don't just read the Bible, meditate on Scripture. With prayer, also, there is an almost universal problem, and it looks like this. That when we do pray, we tend to say the same old things about what? The same old thing. And when you've said the same old things about the same old things about a thousand times, how do you feel about saying them again? Yes, boring. We can be talking to the most fascinating person in the universe about the most important things in our lives and be bored to death. Not because we don't love God, not because we don't love who or what we're praying about. I would contend, if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the problem is not you, rather it is your, your method. And the method of most Christians, it seems, from the beginning of their Christian life is that they say the same old things about the same old thing. 
Now, praying about the same old things is not the problem. Because to pray about the same old things is normal. Our lives tend to consist pretty much of the same old things from one day to the next, right? And if I sent you out right now and I said, I want you to go, everybody to get by yourself, pray alone for 10 minutes, you'd all pray about the same six things probably. You'd pray about your family, some broad sense or another, your future, your finances, your work or a student, your schoolwork, that place where you spend most of your waking hours, your church, your ministry, Christian concern that you have, and the current crisis in your life. That's your life, right? There's almost nothing in your life that's not related to your family, your future, your finances, your work or schoolwork, your church, your ministry, and the current crisis. And thank the Lord, those six things don't change dramatically from one day to the next. So to pray about the same old things is normal. To say the same old things about the same old things is boring. When prayer is boring, you don't feel like praying, do you? You don't feel like doing something when you know in advance it's going to be boring, do you? When you don't feel like praying, you know what you don't do? You don't pray with any fervency, with any consistency. Oh, you may grind it out for five to seven minutes, but your mind is wandering half the time. You'll suddenly come to yourself and say, no, wait a minute, where was I? I haven't been thinking about God for the last several minutes. And you come back to that mental script in your head that you've repeated a thousand times, and you pick it up again, but because you've said it so many times, almost immediately your mind wanders in another direction. And we say, I know prayer shouldn't be like that. I want to pray. I believe in prayer. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says He causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, right? Those indwelled by the Holy Spirit really want to pray. We want to pray, we believe in prayer, we try to pray, but in our experience it's boring, and so we say it shouldn't be that way. I guess it's just me. I guess I'm just a second-rate Christian. There's a simple, permanent, biblical solution to this almost universal problem. It has to be simple because all of God's children are to pray. And God has people all over the world, and they are so different. If all are to do the same thing, it has to be simple, which means every Christian in this room should be able to have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life. Especially someone like you has a good church, access to Christian books. You, you have more Christian advantages than almost any other group of Christians in the world. The simple, permanent, biblical solution to this almost universal problem is when you pray, pray the Bible. And I find the Psalms to be the best place for this. So I'll typically, I'll have my time in the Word elsewhere, perhaps when it's time to pray. Usually I go to one of the Psalms, and it looks something like this. If it were to be in the 23rd Psalm, I'll read, The Lord is my shepherd, and say, Lord, I thank you that you are my shepherd. You're a good shepherd. You've shepherded me all of my life. But, oh, great shepherd, would you shepherd my family today? Guide them into the ways of God. Guard them from the ways of the world. Lead them not into temptation. Deliver them from evil. And, oh, Lord, I pray you'd make my family your sheep too. May they love you as their shepherd as I love you as my shepherd. And, oh, great shepherd, would you shepherd me in this decision I have to make about my future? Do I make that job change or do I not? Do I make that move or do I not? Shepherd me, Lord. Shepherd my family. Shepherd our under-shepherds at the church, shepherd them as they shepherd us. And then when you can't think of anything else, you go to the next line. I shall not want. Lord, I thank you I've never really been in want. I haven't missed many meals. All that I have, all that I am is from you, Lord, but I know it pleases you. I bring my desires to you. Would you so would you provide those finances that we need for those bills, for school, for that car? Or you know someone is in want and you pray for them. And you just go through the psalm line by line like that, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. If you don't understand the verse, fine, skip it, go to the next one. If you understand the next one perfectly, but it just doesn't prompt anything to pray about, go on to the next one. And you do that, that prayer will be unlike any prayer you ever prayed 
in your life. And you didn't have to remember anything. You didn't need notes of any kind. Just you and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And you just go through it line by line, talking about what comes to mind as you go to the verse. And the Word will do its work. And those prayers will be far more biblical than any prayers we make up on our own. And that's what we usually do, right? (laughs) We make up our own prayers. And that's not to say that free prayer is wrong necessarily. You're just walking down the street, something comes to mind, you pray about that without even relating it to the Bible at all. Great, keep that up. But in our regular times of prayer, I think there's no better way to pray than to pray the Bible. That gives you every day is a new prayer. You never again say the same old things about the same old things when you pray the Bible. And you don't need any notes to do this. To remember, you just talk to God about what you see in the Word of God. And this method will expand or contract to however much or however little time you have. I require my students once during the semester to spend four consecutive hours alone with God. The first day of class, when I say that, you should see them go, what am I going to do for four hours? But I've now had thousands of them go through it. And nearly every one of them writes in their journal, they spent more than four hours. Not because they had to. They were enjoying it so much they didn't want to stop. You know what most of them do during the four hours? After I've taught them about meditation on Scripture and how to pray the Bible, they just alternate between those two. And they may go out on a prayer walk, just walking, praying through one of the Psalms. And you can do that, some of them do it for two hours. They can't, they can't remember the last time they prayed ten minutes. With a, you just keep going to the next verse when you pray the Bible. You don't have to think of anything. You don't have to remember anything. You just talk to God about what you find in the text. It'll be unlike any prayer you've ever prayed in your life, and it's so simple. Anybody can do that. Now, again, I'm not trying to sell books. If you want help in that, I'm glad God kept me alive long enough to put that little book in print out there called Praying the Bible. That's what I speak on more than anything else. I think... More and more, I'm beginning to believe the reason God put me on the planet is to spread that message. Other than the gospel, I'm on the planet to spread the idea of praying the Bible. It is so simple, and it's something any Christian can do. A six-year-old who can read can do this. The one who knows the Bible best, the one who knows the Bible least. The most mature one in the church, the least mature one in the church. If you led someone to Christ this afternoon, and tonight was the first time they'd ever been in church, they've never read one verse of the Bible in their life, they could do this. Going, just going through a passage line by line, talking to God about what comes to mind. They won't understand all that you will. They'll skip over a lot more verses than you will. But if he prays through Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, Lord, uh, shepherd me as I grow as a Christian. <laughs> he got it. <laughs> he got it. Anybody can do this. Anybody can do this, and it is so simple. And you know what happens? When every prayer like that is fresh and you're getting it from Scripture, it's like a real conversation with a real person. Because that's what prayer is, isn't it? It is a real conversation with a real person. Folks, this is God speaking, right? This is God speaking. And if you want to hear God speak with an audible voice, read it out loud. That's God speaking, using your voice. That's God speaking. And when we pray the Bible, we experience prayer as a real conversation with a real person. We're not imagining God saying things to us away with that kind of mysticism. This is God speaking. So in verse 1, Psalm 23, he talks about being your shepherd. Then you talk to him about being your shepherd. Then he says, you shall not want, and you talk to him about that. You respond like you do in a real conversation with a real person. And if he says something that doesn't prompt a response from you, he continues to speak in the next few verses. Then he says something that where you engage, you enter back into the conversation. And God is willing to have that conversation with you as long as you want. And it's so easy. So, big picture again. We're talking about thirsting after the thirst slaker. Prayer then no longer is just a rehearsing of words you've said a thousand times before. 
where you often get the sense you come before God and you sort of imagine God saying, okay, here, you go through it, say it again, you know, hurry up, i got a universe to run here. Let's, let's go through this one more time. Say it again, I'll listen. We have the sense, you know, it, that even God is bored with our prayers. You know, we're bored with them. God must be bored with our prayers. But we don't have the time. We don't have the creative energy every day to come up with new ways to talk about the same things. The good news is you don't have to. Pray through passages of Scripture, especially one of the Psalms, and every prayer you ever pray will be different than any prayer you've ever prayed in your life. But you'll also discover that you'll pray about the same things you want to pray about, those big things. You'll pray about them in brand new ways every day. Instead of just, Lord, bless my family today, you say, Lord, shepherd my family today. And there's something about that shepherding imagery that just transforms that prayer. Because we're not just praying different words, and that alone is worth it, isn't it? <laughs> just to pray different words. But it's not merely different words. Folks, there's a supernatural quality to these words. These are inspired words. Jesus said the words I, I speak to you, they are spirit, they are life. These are the words we're praying, not merely different words. By the time I talk about George Mueller, greatest man of prayer and faith since the times of the New Testament, he prayed the Psalms. For 10 years, he didn't. He struggled in prayer, he said. It'd take him half an hour to an hour before he got into the spirit of prayer until he started praying the Bible. He said, I never suffered that way anymore. In Acts chapter 4, that when they prayed and the place was shaken, remember that? They were praying Psalms. And twice on the cross, Jesus prayed Psalms. The longest thing he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? first verse of psalm 22 we know why he spoke briefly i believe there's reason to believe as he sank back down he continued praying through psalm 22 and then at the very end he said into your hands i commit my spirit psalm 31 jesus prayed the psalms and by the way as a byproduct that's also a method of meditation on scripture you look at a text, you think about it, you talk to God about it, glance at it again, think about it for a minute, pray about it. You know what you're doing? You're meditating. You're also meditating, not just praying. And you do that later in the day. What was that verse? Oh, yeah, that was a verse when I prayed this. You'll remember. So simple. So transformational. Third and last way I would recommend practical step for thirsting after the thirst slaker is to read thirst making writers read thirst making writers after the god-breathed words of the bible read those time-tested works by those christian writers who write with a thirst making pen when you read their works, it makes you thirst for God. Your pastoral staff can give you a list as long as your arm. <laughs> but read those time-tested works. I mean, as long as, as I've already said, the best-selling book in the history of the world next to the Bible is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It, 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 people are poorly educated if they've never read the, the best-selling book in the history of the world next to the Bible. But it's a very poor Christian education without it. I require my students to read it. It's an allegory of the Christian life. It's King James kind of language, but it's a story, so you'll get into it very easily. Read there's, Most times, most books you see is just the first part. Make sure you read the second part, which is about... The first part is Christian in the allegories, making his way from the city of destruction to the celestial city, heaven. The second part is when his wife, Christiana, and the children make that journey. So you want to look in the second part of it, you see a character named Christiana. You'll know you have both parts. It's a great, great, great book. And people will read the works of Charles Spurgeon as long as Christianity is in the world. His collected sermons comprise the largest collection of books by any single author in the world in English. His collected sermons. Oh, by the way, he wrote 120 other books in addition to that. It's one every four months of his life. What have you done in the last four months? You know? 
Yeah. I mean, I could go on. He read five books a week. He wrote 500 letters a week. Well documented. I mean, I could go on and on. Spurgeon is a superman. But that's the reason why you need to read him. Unusually blessed. Edwards, if you can handle it, oh, start with his personal narrative. You can read it in less than an hour. It's my favorite of his works. The personal narrative. You can find it all over the internet by Jonathan Edwards. Oh, There are so many. Tozer, we've talked about. Martin Lloyd-Jones, my preacher hero of the 20th century. Listen to his sermon called But God from Ephesians chapter 2. Martin Lloyd-Jones recording trusts on the internet. There's an app just for Lloyd-Jones' sermons. His commentary on Sermon on the Mount is one of the best ever. Read these enduring writers that that generations of Christians have said, when I read that, it sets my heart on fire. Read the biography of George Mueller. I require my students to do that. 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayer in his journals, 30,000 of which he said were answered the same day or hour that he prayed them. I did the math once. I forget what it is now, but it's something like five or six specific answers to prayer every day for half a century. If I had five or six specific answers to prayer this week, it'd be the greatest week of my life, wouldn't it? It was like every day for half a century. It's like reading another chapter in the book of Acts. Singularly blessed by God. There's so much edification there. George Mueller, and if you can, the one I have my students read is by an author named Roger Steer, just like cattle, S-T-E-E-R. And the book is called Delighted in God. Delighted in God. If you can't find that one, read George Mueller of Bristol. George Mueller of Bristol. John Piper is a contemporary writer that way for so many. All of these men had this burning blend of, of spirit and truth, heart and head, light and heat, piety and theology. And as he did with my friend T.W., may the Lord bless you with a great lifelong thirst for himself because he intends to satisfy it with himself. Let's pray. Oh, great satisfier of our souls, the one who has created us and who alone knows what will most greatly, deeply, lastingly satisfy the one who has given us a longing for a satisfaction and happiness we have never known oh god come i pray for a great unprecedented moving of your spirit in this church in this city in this country in the whole world oh come lord jesus Come in a power we've never known before. We long for you. We thirst for you. You have given this desire to us, and only you can give us what we desire. We long for that. We long to see your face like nothing else. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, Lord, bless with much lasting fruit from this night. Give people safe travels back. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.